How many of you have ever had a moment in your life where you saw somebody coming from a little distance and you said, oh no. (laughs) And you're like, if I could duck around this corner, if I could get away from them, if I could pretend I'm busy, if I could not engage with this person, I'd be the happier. And they talk about themselves all the time. They're super negative. Maybe they've got really bad breath. Maybe they're just boring. And you're like, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. Same question. Be honest. How many of you have had an occasion in your life where you saw somebody coming from a little distance and you went, oh, sweet, great. I, I, they're, they're fantastic. I wonder how they're doing. I hope I could maybe you know, have a chance and have a chat with them and see how they're doing and catch up. They're really great. And maybe you don't know quite how to put your finger on it, but you're just like, they're just nice. They're just, that's just a nice guy. She's a nice girl. I, I'd love to say hi. Hold that thought. I want to give you some good news if I could. You and I were so utterly broken and damaged because of our sin, rebellion, and shame and guilt. And here's the good news that God was unwilling, he's just unwilling to allow it to remain like that. It's it's the Christmas story. I am coming. I'm going to move mountains. I'm going to come from heaven to earth for you. And I see all that you've done to, to mess this up, and you are on the receiving end of two horrible consequences death and separation from the Father, but I'm unwilling for that to to be the story of your life. So I'm going to come in and I'm going to intervene so that you will never experience death or separation from the Father. Instead, I'll take your spot, I'll take your place, and I'll experience death and separation from the Father. And instead, you get my grace and love and patience and kindness, and, and you get new life. And then, like, if you can believe this, like adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. Church, this is good news. Amen? This is really, really good news. And I'm fired up about it. And we're going to talk about it, and we're never going to stop talking about that. If we do that, we're something else other than the church. And we are devoted and committed to expressing that very message that I give you like a 30-second version uh, for right there. In the last few weeks, we've been highlighting and underscoring uh, that very good news. And we've been giving, I think, just best practices so that that message right there is, it's got to be more than theory. It's got to be more than an, an Instagram post. It's got to be more, even as much as we value and appreciate the preaching of God's Word, it has to be more than one day a week on a Sunday morning in a building. And so the question goes out, what is your personal expression and commitment and part in giving voice to that message right there? And statistics show us that those who follow Christ, generally speaking, in the United States of America, simply are not sharing that at all ever. Two weeks ago, we highlighted a best practice of the gospel, uh, that being hospitality. And I hope that your hearts and your homes are open to people, um, friends and family, but maybe even strangers. They'd be on the receiving end of that kind of warmth from you. Two weeks ago, or excuse me, last week, we deliberately talked about the power of just leveraging something as simple as an invitation. And uh, how that can be powerful, that we've all been on the receiving end of an invitation. Do you want to come to this thing? Would you like to hear this? Do you want to come to Christmas Eve service? Do you want to come to Easter? Something like that. 
this week, what I'd like to do is I'd like to share a best practice of the gospel with you. I, I think it's very simple. I think it is tremendously powerful. If I could put it in the form of a question, I would simply put it like this to you. How, how do I look? How do you look? Somebody sees you coming from afar. Yes or no? Oh, sweet. Or I'm going to duck around this corner here. How do you look? And I'm not talking about your clothes. I'm not talking about your cologne. I'm not talking about your hey dudes. I'm not talking about your muscles or your makeup. I'm talking about your person. How do you look? If I could take that from a question and put it in the form of a statement, a best practice of the gospel is quite simply a beautiful life. Is the life that you're living, is it attractive to other people? Do they look at you and say, I'm actually drawn to that. Maybe they wouldn't say it, but, but they are. I don't mean a charmed life. Ever met a person who doesn't seem to have a problem in the world? Everything just goes easy for them. That's not what I'm talking about. And if that's you, good for you. I'm talking about a beautiful life. Somebody sees you coming. Oh, she's fantastic. That guy's great. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hang out. Yeah, that'd be so good. They see you coming. Nobody's ducking around the corner. Why? And it's not that you're just some nice person. It's not that at all. It's that you are so attuned to this mercy and grace that you have received from Jesus Christ that it literally changes your demeanor. That it creates in you this gentleness, this tenderness, this loving way about you because you are in, I think, a sense of humility so filled with wonder and gratitude that you're just not like everybody else and somehow that shows on your face. Like it's visible. And, and sometimes that can fade and don't, don't we forget the goodness of God sometimes and we don't like that but sometimes we get distracted, we get off in other directions and it can fade and I'm like, Lord, I don't ever want that to fade. I want the most attractive thing about me to be this childlike way in me that says, man, I'm just so filled with gratitude and awe about the goodness of God in my life that there's something that I'm displaying of His goodness. Through the centuries, people have been so devoted to that message, that good news that we just shared, like the 30-second blip, that they have devoted and committed all. They're so passionate and so fired up about it. People have literally moved to other nations, given away all their possessions. People have disguised themselves as one thing, but moved to another country as a missionary sold everything, and some have been on the receiving end of where that's revealed, and they actually end up in trouble legally, or they end up beaten, or imprisoned, or deported, or sometimes much worse. Let me give you just a tidbit of one or two little pieces of some church history here. In the year AD 104, it was known as the third persecution. It was a third wave of persecution under a gentleman by the name of Trajan. And I want you to see a description in here of the beauty of how the lives of Christians were described. But in the context of, you live like that and you're in trouble. So there's a man by the name of Pliny II, and he was so moved with compassion because Christians were being so mistreated, I don't believe he was even a Christian at all, that he wrote a letter to Trajan trying to certify that there were thousands of Christians who were being put to death, even though they had done nothing that were contrary to the laws of Rome. 
and that they were being persecuted. Here's how he described their crime and the beauty of their lives. He says, they are accustomed to meet before daylight on a certain day to repeat their prayers to Christ as a God and to bind themselves by an obligation. Not an obligation committed to wickedness. On the contrary, it is an obligation to never commit theft, robbery, adultery, never to falsify their word, never to defraud another man, after which is their custom to reassemble and they partake in a common harmless meal. It's a beautiful life. It is a life of love and, and liberty. It's a life of caring for the people. Do you, do you catch a glimpse of how they looked the beauty of their lives? One other just little small tidbit from history. Second century Christian were, devoted, were devout and they were living pure lives. They were putting on display for everybody to see the beauty of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ, and yet they suffered again in their thousands. There's a gentleman in this same persecution. His name is Ignatius. I got to meet Ignatius one day in heaven. I got to shake this guy's hand. He blows my mind. I mean, I don't know if I'm anywhere near this guy. In fact, I'm not, not even, not even close. He succeeds Peter. He becomes the bishop of Antioch. He's strengthening churches. He's confirming churches throughout, uh, throughout Asia. He's preaching the word of God, and he's captured, and the church um, he, you know, are concerned about him. And he writes a letter to Christians to say, look, it's inevitable. I, I will be killed. My martyrdom is what is coming next for me. And what he said to them in the letter was like, don't try to stop it. Don't try to prevent it. Don't try to rescue me from that at all. And I'd be like, yeah, please rescue me. I'd like that a lot, please. But he's going to die. He's going to martyrdom. This is what he says. Now I begin to be a disciple. I don't know that I would say that. I'd be like, please get me out of here. Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may win Christ. Let fire, let the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me, be it so, only may I win Jesus Christ. And when he was thrown to the lines, this is what just blows my mind, this is what he actually said, I am the wheat of Christ, I'm going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. Was that on your mind? Your devotional this morning with Jesus, is that what you said to him? Oh my goodness. Now, I'm very glad, and you probably are too, that we're not in a scenario where we are facing those kinds of situations where we're going to be imprisoned or beaten or, or, or killed just because we claim allegiance to Jesus Christ. And you look at those historic accounts, they're inspiring, but they're hard to wrap our arms around. We recognize that we don't live under that kind of threat. But that does not mean that the good news that we carry, this gospel, is being met in our culture today with a sense of understanding or tolerance. I think that has shifted somewhat. All of this begs a question that I want to pose to you today. Will you live your life in a radically different way, a deeply good way that displays the beauty of the gospel? Somebody sees you coming. And just because of the way you live your normal life, they go, oh yeah, I want to be around that person. Something magnetic. And look, in our context, it may not be martyrdom, but to live in a deeply countercultural way that simply promotes this great love for people. That is a best 
practice for carrying and witnessing this gospel message. If you do that, here's the consequence. You will find yourself in situations that you will cause you to go, what on earth am I doing here? I mean it. If you actually live your life with an antenna for the gospel, not theory, not Instagram post, active, you're going to find yourself in conversations where you're going to go, How, why am I talking to this person? This is uncomfortable. This is crazy. What am I doing? You're going to find yourself in places with people. And here's the thing. We like the lazy boy and the remote. And that's not what gospel carrying is going to do for you. Several years ago, quite a few years ago, I was trying to minister to a young man. And I'm not joking you, he was a wild man. He was just wild, out of control man. And uh, he had lived a life where he had got caught up, caught up with, uh, in particular, with drugs and alcohol. He was a heroin addict. And he had hit rock bottom so many times that he had finally got to a place in his life where he's like, I've got to stop my self-destruction. And, uh, and there was something in him that wanted God. And I was just trying to connect with him. And one day, uh, very, very early in the morning, he woke me up with a phone call. Uh, Alan, I'm in trouble. I-, I need you to come and get me right now. So I got up before everybody else was up, and I got in the car, and I found him in a motel in Detroit. He got in the car, and he told me what went wrong. He said, yeah, last night I I fell off the wagon, and I was drinking, and I'd been using. And um, he said to me, he said, drugs and prostitution. Prostitution and drugs, they're, they're always synonymous with each other. And he said, I ran out of money, and I wanted more. And I took my car keys, and I handed them to a prostitute and I gotta get my car back. Can you drive me to this place? That's where my car is gonna be. So, I never took this class in seminary. I, I don't remember, I don't have any notes on this one. Like I promise you, I'm totally uncomfortable. I'm not, I'm not in the happy zone here at all. And so I drove him to this place and there was a very large house close to downtown Detroit and that probably was a very beautiful house one day, but it was pretty dilapidated. And he jumps out of the car. And there's this guy standing there. And I know this is ridiculously stereotypical, but this was like, a, I'm looking out the front window, and it was right there in front of me. He was talking to this guy. Does anyone know who Mr. T is? I've never seen so much gold on another person in all my life. He was just covered in gold. And I know that's such a caricature, but that's what he was, that's what he was wearing right in front of me. And, and he is a pimp. And they started screaming at each other and shouting. I mean, a slightly volatile conversation. And I am just wide-eyed looking at this thing like, how did I get here? What am I doing in the middle of this? Why is this happening in my life? And then, I'm not even joking you, a dozen to 15 prostitutes came out of that house because they heard these two guys roaring at each other. And they came over to the car and they're standing all around the car. I'm like, what is going on in my life? I'm waiting for somebody to pull out a gun. I mean, that's what's going to happen next. He grabs the keys, gets in the car, looks at me and says, drive. And I did. I drove the car pretty quick and I got out of there. Now, listen, I don't, remember, I don't recommend that situation to any of you. And actually, I chewed him out for doing that to me, for putting me in that position. But the gospel will get you out of your lazy boy. The gospel is going to do that. 
The gospel will put you in places that you never dreamed of. The gospel will drop kick you into conversations where you have to engage with Christ and the Holy Spirit in order, be, in order to be a beautiful and yet formidable force to be reckoned with as you express the gospel in your life. It's easier to just be a nice guy. It's easier, and these are the roles that we love, to be a consumer or to be a customer. But that's not what we are. And God calls us to live such a beautiful life. It ought to look different, radically different, radically more attractive than someone who has no hope or trust in Jesus Christ. Listen to these words, please. You owe every person you meet a God encounter because you carry the presence of God with you. That's a different way to live your life. You owe every person you meet a God encounter because of the way that you carry the presence of God with you. Let me show you an example. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. So the gospel is going to drop kick you into places and conversations that you never thought. Look at it. Here is the creator of the universe. Here is the second person of the Trinity. Where is he? Well, he's lying on his back in a feeding trough in a cave. That's where, that's the extent that he was willing to go to for the gospel message. He's feeling the cold air on his skin. First time ever. He's feeling pangs of hunger as he looks at his teenage mother. So how do we live in a way that begs this question? Begs a question. It's a question that both Ignatius and Jesus Christ already answered. The question being... How will I pour out my life for the gospel? How will I give this life? And how will I even be willing to put myself in unexpected places and essential conversations? I will position myself along with people who are far from God. I will posture myself on behalf of people who have no hope. And here's how we do that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you then as foreigners and exiles... I've been called a foreigner for a lot of years. I urge you as foreigners. And so there's something that you would say, look, I get my nationality and I get my last name. Maybe you're a Smith or a Johnson, or whether you call yourself an American or an Irish person or a French person or, or whatever that is. But there's something that actually takes precedence where you say, actually, do you want to know where I'm from? I am of the kingdom of God and my family of origin. Actually, would you like to meet my family? I've got lots of brothers and sisters. I'm adopted into the family of God. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. And so here's a marked difference between you and just about everybody else out there. And so I get that sin is still knocking on the door and sometimes we say yes to it, probably all too often. But the thing is we're living a life where we're being transformed and it will not have mastery over us which wages war against your soul. We know that, we've experienced that. Instead, this is what we do, and look at this beautiful life. We live such good lives, even among these pagans, and that was not a derogatory term when that was written, that though they even accuse you of doing wrong, and they will, if you follow the teachings of Jesus Christ in this culture, you will be accused of bigotry, you will be accused as an unintelligent, unscientific person, but they would look and they would see your good deeds, not hear your sermons, not look at your social media posts, 
but they will glorify God on the day that he visits. Such is the beauty and character of your life. Again, I ask you this question. Will you live your life in a radically different way and a deeply good way that displays the beauty of the gospel? Which one are you? Best argument for Christianity? Christians. Or, worst argument for Christianity? Christians. Which one will you be? Oh man, I got to duck around the corner, not them. No, thank you. Self-obsessed, negative, cynical. That's everyone else. As a follower of Christ, if that's you, I call you to live a beautiful life. Which one will you be? When Christians are somber and joyless and self-righteous and smug and narrow and repressive, Christianity dies a thousand deaths. And yet, it's sometimes it's the reputation of Christianity. Jesus encountered this with the Pharisees again and again. There's no one else he had more difficulties with and no one else he challenged more. Dallas Willard says, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling and stiff and unapproachable and boring, boring people, lifeless, obsessive and dissatisfied, always complaining about something. Yet such Christians are everywhere. What they are missing is the wholesome vitality and liveliness springing up from living within God's loving rule in their life. Spirituality, wrongly understood or pursued, is a major source of human misery. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And I don't want to be that church. Spirituality, rightly understood. That's a force to be reckoned with because that is a life of wonder and joy and simplicity and awe and worship and gratitude and love and servanthood and humanity and courage and truth. Such things are really possible. There is a kingdom in which they are the most real things in the universe. I pray this year somebody walks up to you and genuinely asks you, why? Look at you. Why? Why are you like that? Has anyone asked you that question? Why is your marriage like that? When I go to your home, I love being in your home. I like that more than my own home. Why is it like that under your roof? How is it that when lousy stuff happens to you, the way you react and respond is different to anybody else that I've ever met? Do people ever ask you, why? There should be something tremendously winsome and attractive about your life. People should see you coming and they should be like, oh, Charlie, it's Sue. Yeah, hey man, how you doing? Hey, you got a second, let me talk to you. Your life should be this gospel magnet, just the way you are, just the way you live. People should be drawn to the sweetness of a person who is deeply, deeply moved and grateful for this mercy and grace in their lives because when we allow that to fade, we become like everybody else out there who is embracing victimhood and cynicism and negativity and depression and sickness and despair. That stuff just creeps into your head and then it gets on your face and everybody can see it. That's not the life of a Christian. It's not the life of a follower of Christ. I had a great uncle in Ireland. He's long gone by now. His last name was Gavin, John Gavin. Most negative man I've ever met in all my life. He was so stinking negative. And uh, 
I mean, this, this is what he'd do. He'd come up to you. And I, you know, as I was young, maybe a teenager, he'd come up to you. Hey, Alan. Hey, Uncle John. How you doing? So, uh, you're drinking a can of Coke there, are you? I'd be like, yeah, I'm drinking a can of Coke. I knew a guy who drank a can of Coke once. He's dead now. <laughs> I'm not joking you. I'd be like, okay, can of Coke over there. It's lovely to hang out with you, man. You are just a sweetheart. That's what he'd say. As, as a man in probably his, his early 70s, he'd commit his life to Jesus Christ, and I watch him in church, worshiping Jesus, and I'll be honest with you, it's not that all the negative was gone, but there was a transformation starting. You'd see this guy giving thanks to Jesus. I'm like, oh, look what God is doing. Author Michael Green puts it like this for the early church. 80% of the evangelism done in the early church was done by ordinary Christians. So not celebrity Christians, not Christian pastors, not you know, global evangelists like Billy Graham. 80% was done by ordinary Christians just explaining their life to their friends and their family. This is a huge best practice. Just here's my life. You want to know why? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Sunday morning at community church and all our campuses, like... I think it's supposed to be so attractive. I think it really is. I hope children come to the children ministry in all our campuses, and, they're, and I know this for a fact. They're like, when can we go back, Mom and Dad? I love that. It should be that way. Why? Because this is the community of people who wave this flag that is the love of Jesus Christ. It's not supposed to be some dour, miserable experience when the people of God come together. We've got so much to celebrate, amen? And so we deliberately intend for Sunday to be an attractive experience for anybody, particularly someone who's hopeless and despair and in darkness. We want to roll out the red carpet and show them the hospitality of the family and the person of Jesus Christ. Here's my point. If you look at church history, and we just gave a little taste of it today, we know even still today, but in history, we have centuries and centuries where the church was hidden. So you couldn't do what we talked about last week. You couldn't invite somebody to a Sunday experience that was attractive and, and, and full of life and full of people for fear that they would report you and you might be arrested or beaten or killed. So track with me on this. What if tomorrow we couldn't do this anymore? What if tomorrow the attractive Sunday morning community church experience was gone. And all that remained instead was the attraction of your life. That's all there was. Would the beauty of your life compel those who are far from Christ to draw near to Him because they kind of want to be like you? Do you see the challenge in carrying the gospel like this? And the word for all of this is witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 18. And you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the world, St. John's, Michigan, Alma, Michigan, Mount Pleasant, Michigan. The story has not stopped. So what do we do? We step into Christmas brimming with joy. I'm not talking about fake. I'm talking about genuine joy that is attractive. What do we do? We step into 2024 
living the most endearing, winsome, beautiful lives, so much so, and this is my prayer for you, that people would actually come up to you and just say, why? And you'll say, do you want to know? Yeah. No, no, no. do you really want to know? Yeah. Let me tell you about Jesus. This Sunday is a big deal, guys. Seven days from today. There are three things going on. It will be Christmas Eve. We'll have 11 services, an opportunity for the lost to hear the gospel. Number two, last week we printed 2,500 invitations. And my goodness me, you guys gobbled them all up. And so we actually printed more. So as you're heading out today, grab a few, grab a handful, use them, give them away. And lastly, number three, it, it really is a big deal what's taking place in Gratiot County. It is a massive deal. I want to thank you for your part in it. It literally would not be happening were it not for you. Thank you for being a part of Elevate. We're opening a brand new facility. It's not bricks and mortar, and we're glad of the bricks and mortar, but it's just another lighthouse where we're going to see for generations the promotion of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. So, church, I love you. God bless. Have a gospel-filled week. Thank you.